Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, Episode 53, Moves and Countermoves. Last time, we saw the various countries of Asia play the great game. Some, like Japan, were forced to. Others, like Russia, truly desired world domination at times, whereas the Chinese simply wanted to have their considerable accomplishments over the last 3,000 years acknowledged, but then to be left alone. As for Russia, that country's foreign policy objectives contained every color of the rainbow, simply because, being such a large country, it bordered so many others that held various levels of antagonism towards it. Thus, the small Communist Party of Germany was told not to wage war with acts of sabotage against the Nazis, but to work for better pay and working conditions for the people, which would, hopefully, slow down Berlin's spending on military programs. Besides, had the Communists made too much trouble for Hitler, this might have speeded up his desire to attack the source of his internal troubles. Russia. No, at the moment, Japan was seen as Russia's most immediate threat. Hence, it was the Communist Party of China that was ordered. Moscow was funding and training the communists there, hence had such control, to join with Chiang Kai-shek's nationalists. Further, they were told to worry about their civil war later and engage the Japanese, as Russia did not currently have the means to check Japanese forces, while attempting to safeguard their western border against Nazi Germany. But there was one more reason Moscow needed help in checking the Japanese at this time. Stalin was sending respectable amounts of war material, planes, tanks, and heavy guns, to the Popular Front in Spain, who were fighting the generals there seeking to overthrow the government. This gesture was not for the love of the socialist Spaniards, but rather had a manifold purpose. At the very least, the fighting was engaging the military resources of Germany and Italy, literally the fighting was happening, over there, not in Russia, which could ruin the results of Russia's industrial buildup. But hoping against hope, perhaps a conflict of this nature might lead to a conflict between the capitalist countries and fascists, which would, by definition, leave the communists out. Besides, Russia was still trying to show the people of the world the benefits and strengths of communism. To leave the left-leaning civilian Spanish government to the non-existent tender mercies of the fascists would make his system of government look weak, especially with the fascists always harping on the moral and almost spiritual power of their ideology. So, with all this in mind, the Russians were not ready to check the Japanese. Any fighting done against their forces on the mainland would have to be done by the Chinese. That is to say, the nationalist and the communist. So, as the remnants of the Chinese Communist Party were nearing the end of their long march, July to August of 1935, Stalin had to find a way for these battered survivors to make a truce with Chiang Kai-shek and somehow work together in fending off Japanese imperialism. 
Well, a victory was optional. They just had to fight. Yet Mao Zedong, the coming leader of the communists, would only pay lip service to this command from Moscow. He would focus his energy on, first, obtaining sole power for himself within the party, and secondly, grow his party. As for using his forces to fight the Japanese instead of the nationalists, that would happen far fewer times than Stalin wanted. As for Stalin, he, in the early 1930s, was in a much stronger position vis-a-vis his experienced officer corps than the Chinese communists. Most of his ranking men had participated in the Russian Civil War, and besides which, had fought directly or indirectly against foreign troops then. Yet the Russian leader also saw these men and other non-military men as potential threats. So, starting in 1935, Stalin began to purge men who either would or could possibly threaten his position. By 1937, this cleansing also encompassed the military. The great purge of the Russian leader has been covered in great detail, so we will suffice with numbers to give an idea of its scope. In June of 1937, Marshal Mikhail Tukhachevsky, the man who embodied the new modern Red Army, along with seven other high-ranking generals, was found guilty of subversion and shot. Over the next two years, three of the country's five marshals were shot. All 11 deputy commissars for defense were shot. Every military district commander was shot. Every leader of the army political administration was shot. Every ranking man of the Frunze Military Academy was shot. 13 of the 15 army commanders were shot. 57 out of the 85 corps commanders were shot. 110 of the 195 division commanders were shot. As for the brigadiers, they got off lucky. Of the 406 colonels, only 184 were shot. As for those officers in the Far East, their percentages were higher. Though not all of them were killed, some were transferred or replaced by men Stalin trusted, at least on some level. As early as June of 1937, a Japanese general returning from Moscow reported that because of the executions, Russia no longer had the leadership in the field to best the soldiers of the empire. This theory was about to be tested as a larger-than-normal-of-late border dispute took place between the Russians and the soldiers of the Kuangtung army. Just two days after this report was made known of the Russian military leaders to Japan's army general staff, three Russian gunboats were fired upon by Japanese forces, while along the Amar River, the border between Manchuria and Soviet territory. It's not known for sure who fired the first shot. Not that it mattered. The deed was done. But this wasn't a planned out engagement on either side. It seems that the changing river, like most large changing rivers, contributed to the confusion. Now, there was a common practice for just such an occasion, when a river acted as a boundary. This was called the Thalweg Doctrine, and basically it said, 
that the main part of the river's middle was the separation line. And if there are any islands within the river, their proximity to that line determined their ownership. Fair enough. Common sense. The islands deeded mostly north of the line were Russian, those to the south, Japan's. But here's where it gets complicated. The line, wherever it was, affected the location of the international waterway of the river, open to all. So it stood to reason that as the main channel of the river changed over time in relation to some of the 75 smallish islands within the river, the international waterway changed as well. And as this was recognized almost worldwide, it should not have been a problem. But once you throw in, on one side, a warlike people seeing everything as theirs if it could not be defended, the Japanese, and two, a paranoid government who viewed the world as out to get it and their leader, the Russians and Stalin, well, you have the recipe for disaster, for war. The treaties that divided this area were written back in 1858 and 1860, and over the last 70-something years, the river's course had changed. The main part of the river had been to the south of some of the islands near a Russian city called Blagoveshensk, or something like that. But by now, the river had changed and now was to the north of the nearby islands. To the Soviets, they saw this change as transitional. It would one day revert back to a more southerly course. So, had recently put up barriers so that there could be no travel north of the islands. But by the spring of 1937, ice melted from winter had smashed and broken these barriers. Their waterway was now open. Being aggressive, ships from the Manchurian River Defense Flotilla sailed up the newly opened northern route on May 31st, near one of the largest islands in the area, called Kanjatsu Island by the Manchurians, Bolshi Island by the Russians. And being arrogant, the Manchurian press made a big deal of traveling this formerly blocked-off passage. The Soviets did not reply in kind through their press. Instead, their response was of a more direct nature. Some 20 Russian soldiers were sent to the island to secure it. There, they found some Manchurian gold miners, but chased them away. And this was on June 19th. The next day, the gold miners returned, along with some local police and a few soldiers. Yet when they tried to come upon the island, the Soviets let loose a few rounds in their general direction, but no one was hit. A few days later, June 22nd, Manchukuo soldiers watched as more Soviet troops were landed on the island, who then began to create defensive dugouts. Also, a squadron of Soviet gunboats was stationed in the area. On that same day, June 22nd, word got back to the Army General Staff in Tokyo about this dust-up. Throwing caution to the wind, the General Staff sent a directive to the Kwangtung Army Chief of Staff, General Tojo Hideki. It read, quote, If territory clearly belonging to Manchukuo has been seized illegally by Soviet troops, 
we believe that the effects upon our future operations could be serious. Therefore, you are instructed to take appropriate steps to restore the previous situation. Unquote. This was declaring war without the declaration and from a body that did not have permission to make such a declaration. And as we will see, General Tojo was not a man to hesitate in times of action. The situation had to be righted and done so to the satisfaction of Tokyo. Well, the Army General Staff, anyway. So, units from the 49th Infantry Regiment of the 1st Division were sent to the area. Their assignment was to force the enemy from their island. The Japanese complained diplomatically as well, but one can't help but think this gesture was all but empty, as troops were already en route. There was a reason why General Tojo did not hesitate to send in those men. The right-wing anti-Soviet officers of the 1st Division were the same ones who had attempted a coup d'etat the year before. They had been put down, but as punishment were sent to Manchukuo. There they had been cooling their heels for a year, feeling the shame of their failure. But suddenly, here was another chance to do the right thing in the respect of Gegu Koju, rebellion or service from below. But on June 28th, the Army General Staff back in Tokyo took stock of their knee-jerk reaction and discussed the overall situation. Was a confused dispute over an island three and a half miles by five miles long really worth a general engagement between themselves and the Soviet Union? Surely there had to be a better way, if only to keep their options open for elsewhere. Soon orders were sent to Manchukuo to recall the men. It was time for the politicians to earn their pay. On that same day, June 28th, the day orders were sent to the mainland for the Japanese to stand down. The Japanese ambassador to Russia met with the Russian deputy foreign minister. Each side strongly presented their case, and this was par for the course. It then allowed for the negotiations from a previously stated stance that each side knew they were in the right. However, the next day, the Russian official told the Japanese ambassador that although Russia still felt that the island was beyond a doubt theirs, it was suggested that both sides withdraw from the area. Thus, honor and lives would be saved. Now, this was most unusual for the Russians, who normally vehemently backed any encroachment or perceived encroachment with a threat or show of force. It seems the Japanese were being offered a face-saving gesture that would allow them to back off, but yet not look weak. Yet it was asked in Tokyo, was this unusually calm Russian reaction a sign of weakness? Probably but only time would tell. Yet none of this mattered, as there would be no time to sift for the truth. After the men of the 49th Infantry Regiment had been told to stand down, they felt humiliated over being recalled. This only added to their shame of having failed a year ago to bring down a weak and corrupt government. And now this. The shame of the men was one thing, 
but the humiliation of their officers was felt far more acutely. The Russian gunboats were still operating near the island, as word of the proposed compromise had reached the area. So, on June 30th, three Soviet vessels sailed past the large island, on its southern side, between it and the Manchurian shore. Now, the Russians believed that this was the main waterway, despite the change. It was still international waters, hence open to them and everyone. However, the Japanese soldiers on the shore, watching them, considered it their internal waterway. So, throwing off the orders from Tokyo, the men used their rapid-fire 37mm artillery pieces to open fire on the gunboats. One was sank, a second was forced ashore, and the third just had time to turn around and vacate the area. Gunboats were one thing, but 37 Soviet soldiers died. Some of those had survived the sinking of their ship, but were then gunned down in the water, trying to swim to their side of the river. Word of this got back to Moscow and Tokyo very quickly. Japan readied for a reaction. But what they got were words. The talks in Moscow continued as if nothing had happened. True, a protest was lodged with the Japanese government, but along different channels. The Japanese ambassador and the Russian deputy foreign minister continued as if they had not heard what had happened. And in that vein, an agreement was reached on July 2nd. The Soviets would leave the island with the understanding the Japanese would do the same thing. Again, this was completely out of character for Moscow, who was sensitive to anyone threatening Soviet territory. The Japanese could not but help and could not be blamed for thinking this was definitely a sign of weakness. The Soviets left the island on June 4th. Two days later, Manchurian troops occupied Kenchatsu Island. Moscow remained silent. But was it going to stay that way? By now, Stalin's military purges were affecting the confidence and thus the fighting spirit of the Soviet army. Was now a good time for an engagement between themselves and Japan? Perhaps Moscow was biding its time, waiting for the best moment to strike. But if that were true, their waiting only lasted 24 hours. One day after the Japanese took the island, a clash at the Marco Polo Bridge between Japanese and Chinese forces suddenly had everyone's attention. That's because it would become, in mere weeks, an all-out yet undeclared war. Stalin may have been keeping quiet, not knowing what was going to happen, but after the Marco Polo incident, he kept quiet on purpose, because he knew what was going to happen. The Soviets had high-level operatives throughout China and in Tokyo, and knew they were those who would work strenuously to stop this from becoming a war. But there were others who wanted it to happen, and they, the reports said, were stronger. The Japanese were going to invade China. The direction of their assault was going away from Russian territory. That was all Stalin needed to know.
But the Kuangtung Army headquarters had figured out a few things as well. They were still living with the shame of not being allowed to fight for Japanese territory. They had been told to stand down, ordered to stand down, in the face of the enemy. This would not happen again. If there was ever again a border dispute, a challenge to their land, to their honor, the officers of the Kuangtung Army would not allow Tokyo to stop them from doing what was right. They would annihilate the enemy who deserved no mercy. That this was China instead of Russia made no difference. <laughs> 